Welcome to the latest episode of The Grower and the Economist. I'm Michelle Klieger, The Economist. And I'm Peter Conjoyan, The Grower. Each week, we team up to tackle the biggest challenges facing small and medium-sized growers. We're one part grower and one part economist, just like your business. Thank you very much, Brian, for coming back and recording this with us. Um, It's been an amazing year. Um, Most people will say it was an unprecedented 2020. And we wanted to check back in and see how your experiments with the farmer's market went and how you were able to get food to so many people and just where you think the future is for the farmer's market and local food demand and consumption. It's great to see you both. Thank you for having me back on. Well, let's see. I I guess I would start with what I thought was going to happen. I know that we were concerned about when the farmer's market would open or if it would open at all. And uh, that was one of two threats that we had this year. We were unable to open in April when we typically do. And it wasn't until the governor issued a an order stating that certain businesses are essential and farmers markets are included in that, that we were allowed to open. Uh, so that was a godsend to have that. And we opened in essentially the beginning of June. So we were two months behind, but we opened with COVID protocol, one-way traffic, booths. We had half as many vendors because booths had to be spaced out. We had a limited number of people we could allow on the street. Of course, everybody had to wear a mask. There was social distancing. We had stations set up. Uh, But even with all that, the customers were great. And although there were fewer vendors, the farmers who participated had seasons comparable to or better than they did the prior season at market, uh, which indicates, of course, that the people who did show up were there to buy produce. Mm -hmm. The packaged and prepared vendors really struggled. The packaged vendors, I I didn't realize how much sampling Mm. is part of their sales process, and they couldn't sample product the entire year they couldn't sample. So their sales tended to be much lower than the prior year, probably in the neighborhood of 40% of what they had done in 2019. Prepared, similarly, people love coming to the market and getting something to eat and sitting down and spending time with their friends and chatting and relaxing. And prepared food this year was really more of a to-go option because there were no options to sit down. There was no music. There were no friends you could hang out with. And uh, some people did participate. Some really wanted to specifically support local prepared food. Uh, So they purchased. Others were fine with it being to go. They still wanted their tamales or pupusas or, you know, whatever was on the menu. Uh, But it it was definitely a challenge. And I think one of the things was it was just a challenge from the viewpoint of the experience of the market. Transactionally going and getting food, you could still do that. There was a little bit of complexity with you couldn't quite browse and then return to the vendors that you had identified you want things from because of the one-way traffic. But 
it was challenging from the context of it just wasn't the same experience. It just didn't feel the same. Uh, but I'm very grateful for our customers and vendors who stuck with us and, and made it happen. The component, I'm trying to remember when we last spoke, were we talking about curbside at that time? Yes, and drive-through, especially for some of the SNAP benefits. Yeah, so curbside was a long, steep learning curve. We're still doing it. It offered us an opportunity to engage with customers, not ending in December, but continuing through the winter and then into next season. The challenges with organizing people, organizing vendors, we experienced most of that in April and May. And uh, by, I think, July, in June, we were renting a temporary facility. In July, we signed a lease on a warehouse. And so at that point, we purchased our first walk-in cooler, and then we purchased two more following pretty quickly. Uh, we purchased freezers. We purchased our first box trucks, and then additionally purchased a refrigerated box truck. Uh, we now have rack pallet rack shelving in the warehouse. Uh, we have, you know, all kinds of equipment that I never really, I always wanted to have like just a pallet jack. I feel like you should just always have a pallet <laughs> jack because it's just so much fun to move stuff around, but we didn't have any need of it before, but now we have a couple of pallet jacks and uh, all kinds of equipment to manage traffic. And we have really managed the flow well. I mean, it, there was times early on there were times when we really were not delivering a good customer service experience because we had a delay in orders getting to cars, people had to wait. There are all kinds of issues. And now people pull up, there's usually no more than three cars in a line at any given time. And we time from the time somebody enters to the time they leave and typically it's under three minutes to process a car and get their order to them. Uh, so I'm pleased that we've really been able to refine traffic. In terms of the food access, we had used the Google form to start and we now have been able to transition some of that traffic to our actual lo uh, local food marketplace ordering platform. So Customers can indicate if they're going to use uh, an incentive like SNAP or if they're going to use just pay with the credit card. Uh, we did pretty well with our programs, our food access programs. I'm thinking uh, off the top of my head, we did about uh, 80,000 in SNAP and WIC transactions through the curbside still had a healthy amount going to the market because of the fact that it was easier to choose mm. exactly what you wanted. Um, but people really resonated. They really loved the curbside option, those who participated. It was safe. It was quick. It was easy. And uh, we, because we were kind of aggregating from different farmers in the area, we were really able to offer the best produce we could find. My understanding is at some point last year, there were um, 
grants or loans or something for the technology to do an electronic SNAP or EBT card that grocery stores had, but farmers markets didn't? Was that something that you guys were able to access and did it improve usability? It would have improved usability dramatically, but no, we did not gain access oh. to that. Farmers markets still do not have online EBT processing capabilities. Um, and we've talked with various organizations about what do we need to do to move that forward. I have to say that in a year like COVID, it's probably not the best year to do some of the nice to haves when everybody's focusing on keeping the ship from burning down. Um, so hopefully this year we'll get some traction on that. The, the new administration has a lot of focus on food access and that may provide some of that federal support whether it's political or financial, in order to make that kind of change. And Brian, you you mentioned that uh, this was this past year was it sounds like it was a big year in terms of warehouse coolers, vehicles, etc. Um, if we if we went back and there was no COVID last year, were those things those capital uh, expenditures on the organization's to do list anyway? Not at all. Uh, not in the short term, at least. We, we've talked long term about having a food hub, having a distribution point that served as an alternative channel to the direct-to-consumer channel that our growers currently, most of them, use. Uh, but the funding wasn't there. The political will wasn't there. It was one of those things we really wanted to do, and we were just going to kind of have to see when the right time was. So... That is one of the silver linings to an otherwise very dark cloud. And that is that it provoked us to do something we've been talking about. And I think there's also a fair amount of that. There, there was financial support, right? We were able to get some grants to help with some of these purchases. Uh, many of them local, which we're very grateful for. The community was really helpful. But in addition to that, there's a fair amount of permission, I've realized, in an environment like COVID, meaning that we had a really imperfect solution. I mean, it, with our coming out of the shoot was, it was at times an atrocity, what was happening. But people were patient because we all knew that this wasn't something that we've been planning for the last year and a half. And we've been, you know, we didn't have all these consultants and figuring out traffic management plans. And we just did it. We basically just filled boxes and opened up the doors. And uh, with that permission, then we really were able to rapidly understand where we were making mistakes because they were really highlighted when we made mistakes. So they're easy to identify. We could work on improving them. And I think that permission really helped us get the, the operation in order pretty quickly. But it's a condition we would not have had otherwise. There, we would have been under much higher expectations of our delivery at that initial moment. So it sounds like you were able to make a little lemonade from all those lemons, right? <laughs> we got lots of lemonade, Peter. <laughs> That's good. You know, it, we we entered this this that past year with so many questions and so much concern, 
And Michelle and I have been, it's been reinforced with every guest that we've had that, uh, that it was okay. You know, we can kind of navigate it through and the small farmers are, are okay. They made it. Um, uh, one, one other question and I'll hand it back to Michelle. You opened your comments saying that you were only able to have about half of the booths in the farmer's market. Was it difficult? turning farmers away or did that just work itself out? That really worked itself out. We thought we were going, we, we did have opportunities to have additional market days if, if we were going to be, which I had actually planned on because I assumed most everybody would want to participate. But the surprises in last year included that there were many vendors who didn't want to participate just because of safety. They were concerned about getting sick. And, you know, that shouldn't have been much of a surprise. I mean, that's very foreseeable. Um, but there were also farmers who started selling earlier in the season and just wanted to keep doing that. For a lot of vendors, 2020 gave them an opportunity to act much more independently than they would be able to do coming to a market. So at the market, there's hours that you have to be there and there's hours that you get to leave. And there's market days where you have to show up and you have to have tent weights. And you know there, there's a whole bevy of kind of agreements we make in order to have a good functioning market. And for many of the farmers, they realized that they now had a more independence in determining when, what days they wanted to sell, what hours they wanted to sell. Did they want to do it more than once a week? Uh, if they don't want to put tent weights on their tent, they don't put tent weights on their tent because they're no longer within the umbrella of the market. And so with a strong start, I think many of the farmers decided just to keep doing that this season and, and having that independent season. Did some work through the distribution center that weren't at the market, or did you have to do both? No, we, we had a mix of vendors doing one or the other or both. Uh, so vendors were welcome to participate in whichever way made the most sense to them. One of the many things that we learned with the curbside is just how very, very different it is from a farmer's market. At the farmer's market, we are really a facilitator. We, we help, we, we act as an agent for the farmers in as far as we take care of the contracts and permits necessary to be able to secure a space for the season. We uh, make sure that there's enough staffing to keep the spaces clean and organized and safe. Uh, we take care of road closures. We take care of trash. We take, you know, all of these kinds of common things. And very importantly, we take care of promoting the markets. We, it's our job to get people to the market. Once people are to the market, it's the vendor's job to sell product, but it's our job to get them to the market. Um, so we kind of started the online that way. We started with this idea of being a facilitator 
And essentially at the farmer's market, somebody comes and they sell however much they can, however much they can convince people or have loyalty or have that relationship. And we're not quite as concerned about how much somebody is selling. And so what we did is we opened up the curbside platform and farmers and other vendors started listing. And we immediately started realizing how different the model was when somebody would list something and then it turns out they didn't actually have it to sell. And now we have orders we've taken and we've confirmed orders and we've charged a customer for the order. And now we have a vendor who's not going to deliver product because they didn't have it or they don't feel like they sold enough or they found a different outlet that week. And so they're going to sell to them instead of to us. And we have to turn around and explain to the customer that product is no longer available. We have to refund all of those purchases, which takes a fair amount of time. We have a customer service issue on our hands and the customers weren't upset necessarily with the vendor who didn't deliver the product. They were upset with us because now we became the face of the product. And we learned over time, the same thing was true for quality. If the product didn't meet the vendors, uh, the customer's expectations, we're the ones who ended up on the sharp end of the stick with that in perception and financially. Or if the size wasn't what they expected. You know, at the farmer's market, you see what you're buying. And online, you can only see the picture and have an image of what you think you're going to be getting. And the image that most people had, or many people had, would be related to what they would expect to see at the grocery store. Uh, so we have all of these perceptions that are not matching if we aren't managing them directly. And that's where we really started to understand that be, you can't be a facilitator and have any efficiency or any success. Because in the midst of all that, if we're upsetting customers because people aren't delivering product that they you know, agreed to sell but then didn't deliver, or people are upset because of the appearance or the size or whatever it is, there aren't sales happening. And I have fixed cost in making this happen. I have staffing and I have warehouse space and I have insurance and I have trucks. And, you know, it occurred pretty early on that we're not going to be successful if we can't control the interface between the product and the customer. So what we really ended up switching to is more of a wholesale model where we would look at our entire mix of product and say, okay, here's what would really sell great right now. There's an abundance of green uh, daikon radishes and people love that. So let's get some of those on the platform. We'd approach the grower and say, would you be interested in selling? What's your pricing figure it all out? Place an order. Now we have the risk of whether it's going to sell or not, but that's something that we're managing and we're also putting those pictures online, which is such a little point, but it becomes so important because the amount of times a vendor would grab a, a stock photo 
from online for tomatoes or daikon radishes or cookies and put it there. Now that's the customer's expectation. And, and then we're at fault for not fulfilling it. You know, it's so we just realized all of a sudden we have to be more of a retailer, not a facilitator, but a retailer, still an agent on behalf of the local food system because our value set says it has to come from the local food system, still educating on why it's different from what you get in the grocery store, but that transaction component we have to control. And have, have, has that uh, forced you to change a bit in terms of shortening the time uh, between uh, announcing what's available in the customer booking and order, meaning um, instead of them booking and then you fill the order, you're purchasing the inventory, then announcing it. You, you, I don't know if I'm explaining that, but. So it's much more of a push process where we're buying produce in advance, we're making commitments, and then we're listing it online and customers are deciding whether they want to purchase it or not. Uh, so the difference there, it's not terribly different in the case of where the farmer was listing it or the vendor directly. The assumption is that, of course, if you're going to list something, you have it and you will deliver it. It's a contract. And with that assumption, the farmer is harvesting or knows they're going to harvest green daikon. And then, so they list them and then we tell them how many they sold and they deliver that and we put it in the boxes. Uh, it, so it's not terribly different except the risk now has shifted entirely to us because the farmer now has a guaranteed purchase from us and we're taking the risk of whether we can sell it or not. So now, Brian, you're acting almost as uh, Michelle and I have done episodes on controlling waste and shrinkage for, for a producer, for a farmer. And now you're in that realm where there's there's a, either a conscious decision to sell out so that you're not wasting anything, or how, how much are we going to buy so that we satisfy every customer and then tolerate throwing some out or, or giving it to a food bank. Um, and uh, Michelle is in the process of teaching me about the principle of economics called marginal um, and the value of that one next sale. So it all blends in together, Michelle, with what we've been discussing. And it's a real life situation where Brian and the farmer's market have learned how to conduct business differently due to the pandemic, right? And you guys have been nimble enough and able to change enough. And like you say, you, you learn quickly from mistakes. Um, that's, that's really interesting, Brian, to hear the update. It, it's been interesting for sure. <laughs> and yeah, we, for the first time we are dealing with issues like food waste, uh, whether that's because there's actually spoilage or whether it's because there was a calcium deficiency in the soil. And so there are slight light areas on the surface of the fruit or, or the vegetable. Um, it's particularly right now when we're really dealing with storage crops, you know, we're learning a lot about the actual storage life of various crops, which could vary depending on growing method. And, uh, but 
their people are not used to pro, many people are not used to produce that's not perfect in visual appearance. And I really mean visually. I mean, we're not going to, we, we try to avoid ever selling anything that's starting to get soft, sure. uh, you know, anything like that, or, or definitely has spoilage. But if it has the appearance of variation, it kind of freaks people out. And, and I, I think the markets haven't necessarily changed that from the grocery stores because farmers tend to bring their best to the markets mm -hmm. as well. Now they may vary in size and there's more varieties and I mean, they do vary in size and color, you know, more naturally than what you find in the grocery store. But we have potatoes that right now they, they've started to get these tiny little buds on. They're just, they're virtually non-existent and we get cust customers writing us saying, I had to compost all my potatoes. So really, because they were inedible. It, it's this, I, we had a customer complaint about somebody received a pound of fresh onions and uh, one onion was like maybe four inches in, in height. They were kind of these uh, elongated onions, like bulbs. And another one was like two inches in height. And the email was essentially like, what's wrong with you? That, that was the accusation from the customer. Like, you know, this is fraud. This is not okay. I'm being taken advantage of. And, you know, I'm like, gosh, they're really good onions. I mean, once you chop them, you don't know what size they started out as. Right. Uh, but it's just that expectation. I can't blame the person. It's, you know, it's totally unfamiliar. But for those uh, complaints, are you also hearing the other side of the coin with the appreciation? Yes, absolutely. So, so many wonderful customers and a lot of appreciation for the growers and our efforts to connect the growers and, and the customers. Um, and some of the people who have been most vociferous in their dissatisfaction with the product they received have since become some of our most loyal customers because we have embraced it as an opportunity to just talk a little bit more about what a local food system looks like and and what are you getting in, in exchange for that. Uh, so it's just a real quick example. One of the reasons that food in the grocery store tends not to bud is because they're, they irradiate it. So it doesn't. So you don't have little sprouts of growth. But fundamentally, this, these things are, they're, units of energy that's their job and so of course they're going to grow in a natural environment that's what they do and uh, so i think just helping people understand that this is actually a really good thing it's kind of like you know be glad when you find a worm in your corn because it means that it hasn't been sprayed yes yeah. so it's just well, that education and then i used to take that a step further there was a saying what's worse than finding a worm in an apple and it's finding half a worm in the apple <laughs> unless you're a big fan of protein yeah yes well said um quick quick story um on on what you're describing with unsatisfied customers and that opportunity to turn them and flip them for for years my my dad in our garden center 
would refuse to refund any money if someone brought a big, expensive hanging basket back to us after they killed it, because his position was, it was fine when it left here, you did something to it. So as a youngster, I, I remember often customers storming out and leaving. As I ascended and, and became more of the, the voice of the business, uh, what I heard at conferences from experts and marketers was, don't ever let them leave in a huff, um, replace the plant. Uh, and, and, and it took me a, a couple of years, Brian, but it, my dad finally noticed that whenever we made good with the customer, they never left with just the replacement plant. Yeah. They always bought more, to your point. So, yeah. yes. and. Um, but but we don't want those few bad apples, so to speak, to ruin it for all those positive comments. You want to get you want to make yourself better and hear the complaints. But yeah. sometimes if you take them to heart too much, it just it can ruin your day, right? Oh yeah, yeah. There's been plenty of storming around, believe me. <laughs> but we try to minimize it. It sounds like you've gone in a lot of directions between new equipment and new business models and new vendors. One of the things I've noticed is, especially as restaurants continue to struggle, that there are more restaurants selling either the prepared or the to-go at the farmer's markets by us, um, which is sort of another interesting intersection. So it feels. do you think that there'll be as, as much experimentation or as much, I don't know, change this year, or is it going to be more refining some of what happened last year? Well, for us, uh, mostly refining, but but continuing to try to innovate, we feel like the markets will eventually return to the events that we all know and love. Uh, and at that point, we will continue to get more customers back and most likely get more vendors back as well. Even some of those who have decided that, you know, it might be better to do things independently a lot of that's unproven for them, just as current path is for us. So I'm confident that the markets will kind of reset themselves, get back on their footing. Now, because of these grants and the opportunity we've been able to leverage, we do have this, this second distribution channel we can offer for the local food system. And the challenge is how do we make sure it survives? How do we make sure it has a chance to actually become what it could become? Uh, so a lot of that is on marketing. Uh, we're realizing that, you know, as a farmer's market, we didn't have to market quite the same way that retail outlets have to market. We weren't competing in the same way. We didn't have direct competition. We had indirect competition, which is the uh, industrial food system is our indirect competition. But with an online and curbside delivery, now we're competing with Whole Foods, we're competing with Instacart, we're competing with all these pop-ups that saw the increase in interest in the local food system and started advertising that, oh, they're, they are doing delivery of, curb, of, of local food, locally grown food. And when you probe a little bit deeper, that's not the case. There was a small percentage of product they would often offer that was locally grown, but the majority of it was uh, not locally grown. 
but we're still competing with all that perception. So this year is really about us learning to be a more sophisticated marketer in regards to this curbside and seeing if we can't really grow that. And also in the uh, idea of innovation, Peter, you were talking about, um, you know, kind of seconds and waste and things like that. Well, waste, which I confer on to seconds. We're looking at building a small, very small commercial kitchen where we can act, take product from growers that is surplus because we started to realize there are a number of growers out there who actually do end up with surplus and uh, you know, give them the opportunity to sell it at their highest value. But when that opportunity passes, be able to take it and see if we can't, for instance, cube root vegetables and create a, a root, roasted root vegetable mix that's bagged, um, cryo-backed, and then offer that online and ultimately see if we can work our way with institutional customers. That's incredible. And one of the conversations that I continue to have with regional food systems or, or exploring and expanding that is the flexibility um, that that growers need to capture some of that value that, you know, all of your tomatoes are going to come do right with or be harvested within a few weeks or, or a short period. And then you, you need a way to sell those. You need a way to sell your either seconds or, you know, something that is not going to be the highest quality. Um, and then you need a, a something to do with it next. So is it turning it into sauce? Is it turning it into salsa? Is it, and like, how do you get those regional assets where somebody could bottle or can or, and and that is that diversity of products, that ability to, if the price of tomatoes is low, save them and do something else with them to make money later. All of those pieces are so important in getting a farm to be profitable that um, it's, it's, it's amazing to hear that you are able to be that nexus right now and sort of pull farms together and give access. Because I think that's really a question, like what is the right model? Because not everybody that you work with is going to invest in the refrigerated truck or the bottler. Mm -hmm. Not everybody wants to do a co-op model and then managing that co-op if everybody wants the same equipment on the same day is a challenge. So I, yeah. I'm really excited by that work because I do think it's a huge piece in getting us to a place where farms are profitable or regional food systems function better. I, I'm excited by it as well. It's so much, I think, of what has to happen in the food system is de-risking innovation for farmers. And this is our, you know, one thing we've learned to do is just kind of be scrappy entrepreneurs. So figure out how to run a small pilot, just an experiment, learn from it and try to build on it. And this gives us the opportunity for that in this area of processing. Uh, we did, in fact, apply for the local uh, local state of Colorado grant for infrastructure. Whether we'll get it or not, I don't know, but it would be wonderful just in terms of helping with, you know, buying a uh, RoboCo processor that dices as well as all slices, dices, and all of the other things. Um, 
and a small countertop flash freezer and just little things that are going to, we can just experiment with the food industry. It's amazing to me how the agricultural industry has uh, R and D is very expensive and fraught with risk for individuals. And so it happens typically at the systemic level of, of uh, land grant universities and really large industrial ag corporations. And if we can figure out a way to just make it a little bit easier for local growers to experiment, uh, I think it would yield tremendous gains in the local food system. We, you just hit on a, a real important point that we've covered in many episodes, Brian, and, and how growers can run trials do their experimenting to make good business decisions. Hey, yeah. perhaps you guys have tossed this idea around, but as you're describing the customer complaint about uh, an onion that doesn't look right, there's there are all kinds of exciting opportunities to uh, have a, a display booth with taste testing. And perhaps there are two crates of tomatoes, one, one heirloom that has all weird shapes, the others perfectly um, beautiful, but doesn't taste as well. And say, these two sauces were made identically. The only difference is these two tomatoes, which would you, which taste better? Mm-hmm. There's all kinds of educational opportunities there. Yeah, there absolutely are. And uh, provided that, you know, we have the the means to engage some of those. It's, it is one of the exciting frontiers. I think just real quickly along those same lines, uh, one of the things that we're looking at is, is can we lead an effort or be part of an effort in this area to have collective messaging around the local food system? The, the challenges of, of educating a customer uh, on, you know, like our organization, we we spend money posting and doing ads and publishing whatever it is to to communicate the value of a locally grown heirloom tomato versus that Florida number two that arrived on the truck, uh, totally green. And it's harder when everybody in that food chain isn't similarly isn't using similar terms isn't identifying similar messaging points. We're kind of talking past each other all the time. And the customer is hearing little snippets, but not ever really something that's cohesive. And I think that's uh, something we're very interested in is, is, is there an opportunity for kind of like a collective, larger than the market, uh, collective of the local food system that can agree on, here's the top six messaging points that support all of the work we do or the work that all of us are engaged in. And let's make sure in our social media posts that we're hitting on at least one of those points. Um, just to have better communication. It's it's hard to have a lot of people talking into the dark. You know, Brian, it, it, it's an excellent point. And uh, after being long in the tooth as I am over my career, uh, this has been a continuous challenge, uh, one that we we don't get um, frustrated over as much as we need to stay motivated, whether it's grades and standards or 
consumer education. That's all the, the carrot dangling out in front of us. So it's nice to hear that those conversations are taking place. I can share with you from 20 years ago how the floriculture industry just wasn't ready to do a got milk program for cutting roses and, and all the, that business went to Central and South America. So we weren't able, we were too independent amongst ourselves to come together. But to, uh, to hear you say that those are the things you're thinking about is encouraging. So go for it. Uh, as we wind down, guys, Michelle knows I have a burning question, Brian, from the day you joined us uh, back in the spring. And that is, I'd like the two of you to kind of update me and our listeners. What struck me like a knife in that first conversation was learning from both of you that locally grown food contribution to agriculture was only 3%. And during our conversation, you guys left me with, with a, if we could double it, if we could triple it, if we could get it to 10%, that's huge. So for months, Michelle's been hearing me either complain or moan about it or say, why can't it be higher? So please, um, are we are we um, denting the number? Are we growing it? What's your sense, Michelle? I, I think you were included mm -hmm. in that question. Do you have a, a sense? So I would say that I do think that a big way to move the needle is with that electronic um, snap purchases at the markets, and I have seen some adoption and just the interviews with the farmers that are able to accept it and the growth that they've seen by that one switch is huge. So I personally think that if we could get people that are low income and have government supports for food able to purchase from the local food system, um, that that opens a big pile of money and resources that hasn't been there before. And there seems to be interest Um so I definitely think that that's one place that the conversation could go um, and that would benefit. And then I think it'll be interesting to see how the numbers turn out this year, that a lot of people were afraid of grocery stores or couldn't get what they wanted or became more health conscious, especially in the higher uh, income brackets. And how many have switched to a farmer's market because it was outside or tasted those fresh carrots and are shifting some of their food dollars. So I, I do think that there was a big opportunity in the last year to see some growth. And that would be interesting at the end of 2021 to see what those numbers look like. I don't think we've made a, a dent in that so far. Uh, however, I am bullish on the future opportunities. And some of the things that I think are going to drive that, and I, I completely agree that Food access, I think, is one of the keys to, to invigorating local food systems. And part of that is, is not just the potential dollars that are flowing, but it completely changes in some cases the, the demographics of who are engaging with the local food system. And I think as you get more types of people different income levels, uh, different ethnicities, you normalize it. And when you normalize it, it becomes safer to those who, it feels safer to those who don't aren't familiar with it. 
don't consider themselves advocates, so, you know, uh, that it's only for the passionate. Um, it just makes it a little bit easier, I think, emotionally to access. The other things that I see that are unique to what happened in 2020, uh, one is because, as Michelle mentioned, the scarcity in the grocery store, issues of community resilience are a little more top of mind for community governments and the people living in those communities. And a food system is, of course, a critical component of community resilience. The environmental conversation with the fires that were happening and the flooding, uh, the, the hurricanes, tropical storms, understanding two things. One is the potential for carbon sequestration, which I think is, there's a lot of hope. I don't know if we're really quite understanding how large that potential is, but there's a lot of hope. And also the very known impacts of having biodiversity and healthy soil and clean water. Um, most local food systems pay much more attention to those attributes than I think the industrial food system does because they're able to communicate the value to the customer and the customer is willing to pay a little bit more for it. And then finally, the racial equity um, crisis that we're having and the conversation around that. And there's a lot of understanding that people who are working or have been working in areas of racial equity very much understand the connection to food equity. Uh, and that gives me particular hope from the federal level because we're seeing programs introduced that are looking at possibilities for agricultural land redistribution or specific uh, local food system efforts in food access. What I see there is generally the potential for more financial support and more political support in trying to do better, trying to move that, that needle a little bit. And uh, I think it'll actually come to bear some fruit. We just kind of, I feel a little sense of urgency that we have to generate some outcomes, some beneficial outcomes while attention is on it, because otherwise we all know what happens. We're just going to get distracted with something else and go back to the grocery store. Well, one, one area here that is growing nationally, where the, the urban food desert, we're beginning to address it with urban greenhouses. And you get stories, there's, there's a, a major facility in Cleveland um, I just read a story in Kentucky of some, not in the urban area, but um, large greenhouse ranges for tomato production. So when I see that, guys, because greenhouse is my world, and I'm seeing more and more fellow ornamental crop growers shifting over to edible crops, that's, that's the part of me that isn't accepting the answer I keep hearing from you guys as the experts. I know I'm the idealist in thinking, but I just, I refuse to accept that over time, we're not going to be able to produce a significant amount of our food local, whether it's greenhouse or farm. So, so thank you both for, again, resetting my feet on the ground, but I hope reciprocally, I'm able to lift yours up off the ground a little bit and say, 
gee, let, let's hope, let's try, let's get a little bit yeah. more than 3%. But, and I, I'm not saying you guys don't want to increase it and expand. I'm not saying that no. at all. It's part of the question, Peter, I think lies in this, this what is art type question that is framed as what is local. So really, when I say 3%, that's our hyper-local food system. Uh, when you look at a food shed or a food region, it may be higher. I think that all of the capacity is there. It's a matter, that's a matter of changing the intended outcome to be one of a food system, not an economic system. I think that a lot of the reason we don't have a greater percentage of local consumption is because the vast majority of agriculture is involved in an economic system and the food part of it is somewhat secondary. It's secondary to the purchase part of it. Well, Brian, as our second visit from you, I learned a lot. And I want to thank you. You're able to see these, these challenges from an altitude of 30,000 feet. I'm more at 5,000 feet, you know, I'm still under the, the clouds. Um, it's so refreshing to hear um, your vision, your experience, how you're marrying the two together. So, so on a uh, personal level, thank you for taking time to join us, return, and share some of your experiences with us. And Michelle, I'll let you finish it up. Well, any final thoughts? Again, I also found this conversation fascinating and useful, and it's incredible just to hear how much you've changed in the last few months. It, it has, uh, it's been incredible to be part of it. And, and thank you for the opportunity. It's, as usual, you're always very generous. I appreciate that. You're good for my ego. Um, <laughs> well, I might come to you. You don't <laughs> you say too many smart things and I might be following up on how to model that, you know, being able to have that desktop dryer and the the yeah. warehouse and all of that and being this this center this nexus for local food because i mean just getting those assets together and 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 helping the farmers use them and connecting with the growers you i mean sorry connecting with the customers you really you have a lot on your plate for sure so well we're we're happy to share and in fact we're working with the farmers market coalition to develop more of a formalized data sharing arrangement with them on these experiments that we do. So if other people do the same, then maybe we can have some collective learning and figure out how to help the industry. The one thing that will always be on my mind, particularly after a year like 2020, is to what extent uh, can we have a lot of independent businesses doing what they do in their own way and how they do it? And to what extent does there really need to be a community of common understanding in order to make this work. And I think that's one of the questions that'll be tested over the next few years. Well, we wish you luck with the, uh, the question and the testing. And um, again, uh, best of luck to you and your members and farmers this next season. And thank you for taking the time, Brian. Thank you, Peter, and thank you, Michelle.